Welcome to the podcast of Peace NBC. Our mission is to reach everyone who is someone in the eyes of the Lord. Listen to this mighty word of God that will bless you. We hope you are touched and blessed by this podcast. To connect with this ministry or for more about Peace NBC, visit our website or email us at pmbc at peacembchurch.org. Come grow with Come peace. Grow with Come peace. Grow with Now we've come to the moment and to the place where we've come to give your name praise. Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this opportunity. Truly, Father, we could have been anywhere else in the world, but yet here we are. Now, Father, we stand in expectation of a word. Father, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Encourage us. Speak to our spirits strengthen us speak to our situations stir us now father yet here i stand as yet a vessel of clay use these lips lord to declare your word in jesus name i pray amen We shall overcome. Those three words are words that many of us are used to hearing in the form of a song. To be quite frank, it is what many of us would consider to be a civil rights anthem. However, the roots of this song are deeper than just a melody. They're deeper than just words that we put together so we could sing and feel good. But the reality is these words are rooted in a testimony. I want us to remember that word. They are rooted in a testimony because they come from a place of struggle. But not only that, they are rooted in a testimony because it shows us how music evolves over centuries. The lyrics of We Shall Overcome borrow from Charles Tinley's song, I'll Overcome Someday. This song was written in the early 1900s and it would would sound something like this. I'll overcome someday. Charles Tinley went on to write the following words, if in my heart I do not yield, I'll overcome someday. The melody of We Shall Overcome borrows from a song written in the 1860s, which was a response to the Emancipation Proclamation, in which our ancestors had gained their freedom, and they put these words to melody in which they said, 
no more auction block. One of the things I've learned is that we've always been a people of music and melody. This melody borrows from an old Catholic hymnal, O Santissimo. The evolution of this civil rights anthem that we know today has been credited to people like Peter Seeger, Charles Tinley, Mahalia Jackson, slaves, and even Union soldiers. Now, I don't know if you can tell or not, but I was not a Union soldier. I don't know if it's the usefulness that gives it away or the fact that I dress a little bit different than they did. But I would like to consider myself a soldier in the army of the Lord. So for what it's worth, I'd like for a few moments to make my small contribution to our civil rights anthem this morning. Our text will be coming from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and verse 11. That's the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and verse 11. When you have it, say, I got it. If you need time, say, hold on, preacher. It's the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and verse 11. I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you. I want to thank the deacons who have allowed me the opportunity to come before you again, the officers of this church. I want to thank everyone who's serving in their respective places, especially the children's church. I don't know if you've seen my children, but I'm pretty sure my wife could use the break. I definitely want to thank my wife who puts up with me, who allowed me to make it to this seven days so we could commune together, who didn't see fit to tie me up and put me in a closet, but she allowed me to be here. I thank you, sweetheart, for supporting me. And lastly, I want to thank the members who are so gracious. I appreciate all of you. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 11, you will find these words. And they overcame him. This him here is Satan. The Bible says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The lamb is Christ. And by the word of their testimony. This there is those who believe in Jesus Christ. And they love not their lives unto the death. As you, <clears throat> as you take your seats, just do me a favor. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, we shall overcome. And here's how. Every last one of us in this room, if we haven't already, will at some point face an accusation. Accusations cause us to undoubtedly feel one of two emotions. We're either going to be angry or we're going to be guilty. If the accusation isn't true, then the emotion of anger would seemingly be justified. But if the accusation is true, then the emotion of guilt would be ever present. You know, it reminds me of the famous words I see all throughout my life, and even I say it to my children, 
Who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Now, if you weren't the one who stole the cookie and yet you were being accused of stealing the cookie, you would be angry because you knew the accusation wasn't true. But if you were the one who took the cookie, you would immediately feel guilt. Whenever we are accused of something, everyone immediately begins to wonder, are you guilty? Now, I know we don't want to be honest, but let's be honest for a second. I'm pretty sure there's been moments throughout time where we've seen a celebrity. And they've been accused of something. And we've looked around the room at somebody and we've said, I wonder if they did it. Or we've seen the local news and we see somebody we know and we'll say, man, I can't believe, I wonder if he did it. And somebody who may have had a personal experience, well, you know that boy ain't got no sense. You know he did it. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, I believe that we will begin to actualize and behave according to the accusations we've been stamped with. If we don't watch ourselves, if we don't discipline ourselves, if somebody calls us a liar long enough, then eventually we might become a liar. If somebody calls you angry long enough, eventually you might be angry. But what also happens is you will start dealing with your emotions. You'll start battling feelings of intimidation and condemnation you'll start inquiring of yourself would I even have these feelings of guilt if it weren't true if I didn't do anything wrong would I feel this way guilt and shame will lead us to depression and paranoia social psychologist Daniel Schneider says that guilt nudges us to behave better. Now I know that really don't make any sense. But he goes on to say that guilt can make us kinder. And more giving. Y'all ever met some people around you that's been guilty? They start offering to cut your grass and wash your car. Because they know they did you wrong. You need me to do anything? Now, now, now let me put it this way. I remember when I messed up as a kid. And my mama would come and I would try to do things to smooth it over. I try to make her feel better. Why? Because I was dealing with my guilt. He goes on to say that shame likewise works with guilt to alert us when we act in ways that will cause others to devalue us. Like I said, this is what I've seen. When people are guilty, they either get real nice to you. Or they become really remorseful. They become rattled with sorrow. Tormented by their wrongdoing. If we be honest, the guilt of our past, whether we were innocent or guilty, can leave us feeling as though God is mad with us. I don't know about you, but I'll tell on myself there have been times where I've had to question if I've made God mad enough. 
God, is this going to be the time where you take me out? But if we're not careful, those feelings in our mind will continue to roll down the hill. Not only will we ask, is God mad with us? We'll ask, is God ignoring me? We start feeling like God's not answering our prayer. We, within that's the time when we start going to mama and grandma and try to get them to pray for us because we feel like our prayers ain't making it through. We try to explain, I don't think God is listening to me. And if we're not careful, this doubt will set in our mind and we will even ask the question, is God even real? Whenever we succumb to these feelings of guilt, it means that Satan has done his job. He has vengefully planted defeat in your mind. Here's the news. The devil is a defeated foe. And one thing I've learned about people who are defeated, there's an old saying that says misery loves company. And so the devil has spent all this time trying to make sure that you and I feel as defeated as he has felt. He plants seeds of failure in your mind. He'll have you wondering, am I a hypocrite? Am I a bad friend? Am I a liar? But you know, one of the things I love about this Bible that we have, it is not only filled with instructions, it's filled with examples of people who've been where we are. The Bible tells us about a man named Job. It talks about how the devil decided that he was going to test and see if Job was really about that life. Bible lets us know that Job was accused and tested. But while I was reading the story of Job, I found out something very interesting. I discovered that oftentimes Satan only hurls accusations at those who are living upright. I don't know about you, but it just seems like somebody out of nowhere always comes when I'm successful. When I'm doing good, that's when they want to question how I got here. Uh, when, 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 when I get blessed with the house or I get blessed with the car or I ain't alone like they've been now, they want to wonder, how did you get what you got? The Bible, the Bible says in Job chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, he says, but put forth thine hand now. And touch all that he hath. This is a conversation Satan is having with the Lord saying, listen, I bet you if you take away all this stuff you gave him, he will curse thee to thy face. This lets us know that the reality is, is that Satan is only trying to see if you're going to be consistent in your testimony. But I don't even have to go to Job to know 
that the devil accuses us. Because much like Job, we've had accusations against us. People have come out of nowhere wondering, and I'm going to just talk about myself. I can't talk about none of y'all. I don't know y'all lies, but I'll never forget when I met my wife. Man, how you get a woman that cute? Man, how you get a job that good? How are you able to do what you do? People will start to question your success and even will doubt whether or not you are worthy of the blessings God has given you. But what I've discovered and what I had to ask myself is, and I wonder if any of you have ever considered the fact that we might actually be being tested. All this innuendo and suspicion and accusations is really just a test. In other words, what I'm asking is, is there anybody here that knows that, that you've got to have a test in order to have a testimony? Ah, accusations are only tests. Come to challenge your testimony. I'm going to say it again. Accusations are only tests that come to challenge your testimony. We shall overcome. And here's how. By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of our testimony. Here in the latter part of our text is the phrase, the word of their testimony. This means that the early Christians stood by their account of Jesus' sacrifice and his atonement for them. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, this word testimony is the Greek word martyria. The Bible here uses the word testimony in its legal sense. It is defined as one who gives a report in which one goes on record as a witness to what they have seen and experienced. And this, testif this testimony is often used as a form of evidence. This is why the Bible says in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, out of the mouth. Of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19, it talks about not receiving accusations against an elder except there be two or three witnesses. These verses shows us the importance of a witness. A witness is someone who has personal knowledge of what has taken place. I'm going to just pause because I got to say this. I don't need nobody trying to tell me what God can do if they ain't never had a relationship with God. I need somebody who's walked with him, who's talked with him, who can tell me I am a witness of the goodness of the Lord. Ah, the Bible the Bible lets us know that witnesses are important, but see, the reality is for us today, I got to take this off, I'm hot. 
Sorry. Excuse me. But what it lets us know is for us today, our testimony is a public confession or declaration of the fact that God has redeemed us from the grip of the enemy. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me see if I can work this. In Psalms 106 and verse 10, the Bible records how David wrote that the Lord was going to save them from the hand of the enemy. And in Psalms 107 and verse 2, he says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, if the Lord has ever brought you out, you ought to open your mouth and say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side. The verse goes on to say, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. This is why I said, I don't need anybody who's, who the Lord has never brought out of something, who the Lord has never delivered, who the Lord has never saved telling me what God can do. Because I, I need somebody who took the test and passed it and can show me the way. I got to go. All right. This lets me know that your testimony should be your personal account. Of how the Lord has redeemed your soul. It ought to be your story of how the Lord has turned your life around. It ought to be your story of since I met Jesus. My life has never been the same. I know they say the black of the berry, the sweet of the juice, but all I'm trying to say is that Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. According to Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, the Bible lets us know that with the mouth of confession, that with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. In other words, if you want to be saved, you got to open your mouth. Uh, but not only that, it also tells me that your public confession of how God has changed your life can lead somebody else to Christ. Somebody ought to say, I've got a testimony. Uh, you can say it better than that. If, if you got one, you ought to be able to say, I've got a testimony. Uh, the reality is God's people have always had a reason to tell of God's goodness. The ancient Israelites recorded how God was their provider. In the book of Exodus, the 16th chapter, somewhere around the 32 through the 36 verses, the Bible records how the Lord instructed Moses to tell them to take an omer of the manna that fell from heaven and put it in a pot. He tells them, put it in a pot so it can be a testimony for future generations so they will know that the Lord has provided for them. You know, I hear so many people talk about why the world is so torrid and why there's so many problems. But I just believe that if the saints got back to having testimony service. If we would get back to telling our children, the only reason you got this house, the only reason you got this car is because if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side, we ought to be able to tell our testimony. 
So the Bible says he told them, I want you to take this man. I want you to put it in a pot so that they will remember that I provided for them. It also reminds me, this story reminds me of the fact that the Bible says, a righteous man leaveth an inheritance for his children. Now, I know we think about that and we think about money and we think about possessions. But really what the Bible is talking about is that we ought to leave remnants of our relationship with God with our children. Uh, God not only provided the manna, but he gave them quail. This lets me know that God doesn't deal in half-sided meals. Not only did he give them manna and he gave them quail, but the part I love about God is he knows every good meal needs something to drink. The Bible says when they were thirsty, he allowed water to spring up from the rock. We shall overcome. And here's how. Let me see if, let me see if y'all been paying attention. By the blood of the lamb. And what else? By the word of their. All right, all right. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Now, not only did Jesus give them manna, not only did he give them quail, not only did he give him water, but he gave them sacrifices to ensure that they would receive atonement for their sins. Now, these sacrifices often required blood because the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that only blood is acceptable for the remission of sin. Now, I was studying this lesson. Many people don't know about the provision that blood supplies. Our natural blood provides stabilizing capabilities. It provides balance when our bodies face imbalance. And so it is with the blood of Jesus. When we are partakers of his blood, we are given stability through times of uncertainty. Receiving from him the same strength that he used to carry out the will of the Father. Blood not only stabilizes, but it also carries nutrients through the veins and arteries to the right organs. It also helps us to eliminate waste in our system. And this shows us that the blood of Jesus will help us to rid ourselves of toxic behaviors and demonic moods. Uh, blood also has a unique function in which when we bleed, it will coagulate or clot. It does this to ensure that we don't bleed too much. And so it is with the blood of Jesus that as the accusations mount upon us. As people begin to continue to call us names, they bombard God with accusations day and night. His blood overshadows every lie. 
His blood covers every false word. His blood stands tall. His blood conceals our faults. To the point where every time God looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus. This is why we sing the song, when I see the blood, I'll pass right over you. So much so that even Satan is left asking the question, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What's so special about man that you have a heart towards him? Lastly, not only does blood stabilize, not only does blood nourish, and not only does blood clot, but it also gives us life anew. Brothers and sisters, we shall overcome. And here's how. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. In the summer of 1876, a young Baptist preacher sat down to prepare a sermon. He was reading Hebrews chapter 9. And while he was reading, he began to think about his own past. And he began to write a question that all of us have faced to answer before. He wrote the words to a hymn I love. What can wash away my sins? And I believe that while he was writing, he realized I already know the answer. Because I've got a testimony. I already know why I'm writing this. He began to ask, how in the world did God keep me alive after all I've done? How in the world am I still here? And then he wrote these words. He said, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I believe that his own answer was a sign that he had walked with God before, that he had talked with God before. And then his pen went into a praise. And it said, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm getting ready to leave you now. But I want to talk about the blood for a little bit. His blood forgives us. His blood restores us. His blood purges us. His blood protects us. His blood conceals us. And his blood connects us. And through his blood, he communes with us. The question that we have faced to answer today is how shall we overcome? 
And if you haven't already understood the answer, we're going to overcome because we've got a testimony. We've got a story to tell. We've got something to say. Is there anybody here that can testify if it had not been for the Lord on my side? I don't know where I would be. I don't know what my life would look like. I don't know where my children would be. But I've come to declare this morning that we shall overcome. And here's how I know we're going to overcome. Because he died. Oh yes, he died. Died until the sun refused to shine. Died until the moon dipped in blood. Died until the stone rolled away. He died until the dead people got out of their graves. Died until those soldiers started to weep. Died until Pilate began to crumble. Died until even Judas killed himself. He died, but that's not only it. Not only did he die, but in Revelation it says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. This word overcome, it doesn't just mean to win. It doesn't just mean victory. It doesn't just mean it's over, but it means to conquer. It means to vanquish. It means to eliminate the Bible declares that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but we're fighting a spiritual battle. And I've come to serve news this morning that the battle is over because he died. The battle is over because there's nothing that can overcome my shame. There's nothing else that can overcome my guilt. I appreciate your thank yous. I appreciate your pats on the back. But there's nothing like the blood of Jesus. There's nothing like the blood of Jesus. Is there anybody here that can stand with me and say, I've heard what the Bible said and I know there's nothing but the blood of Jesus there's nothing but the blood of Jesus nothing I want us to think about that word nothing but the blood that could clean us up. Nothing that could make us whole again. Nothing that could fix all my wrongs. Nothing that could wash me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The doors of the church are now open. And I want you to hear me. We say this all the time, that the doors of the church are open. I'm going to come down. But we say this a lot. We say, you know, the doors of the church are open. 
But that's not just a routine phrase. What that phrase means is that the church, this hospital, this place of education, this place where you can meet the best thing you've ever met in your life is available to you. Now, I'm a people person. And I believe that you don't have to walk with God alone. And if you're here and you say, you know, I got a relationship with God, but I might need to reconnect a little bit. I would simply ask, will you come? And before you really think about that answer, you don't have to have it all right. You don't have to be perfect. You just got to want to know. There might be somebody else that says, you know, I don't have a church home. I visited, traveled, I've looked, but I kind of like it here. It's warm here. The people are pretty nice. You say, you know what, I want to make this place my home. I would ask, will you come? There may be some that say, you know, I just want prayer. I don't even know if I need all that other stuff, but I just want prayer. The thing I love about prayer is nobody has to know why you need it but God. And I want to invite you to come if that's you. And if you're too afraid to do, to come because of any of those reasons, just lift a finger. I'll see you. And I'll come to you. Because I believe that there's no greater moment than now. Will you come? I'm here. Will you join me? Thanks for listening to this podcast. We hope you were touched and blessed by what you have heard. Remember to follow us on social media. For more info about Peace NBC, visit us at www.peacenbchurch.org. If you would like to support this ministry and help us reach more souls, visit our website and click Give into this ministry. Be blessed, and we will see you next time. Peace in BC Podcast. Podcast. Podcast.